And we're live. Hello, and welcome to Author Spotlight. I'm Rachel Barenbaum, author of the new book, Atomic Anna. And I'm super, super excited about my guest today, John Vircher. Here is his book. It's unbelievable. After the lights go out. It was so good. It is heavy. There are some deep themes in here. Um, but I just couldn't put it down. It was really, I just kept wanting to read and read. John, this is a tremendous Tremendous book. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me and thanks for the kind words. Yeah. So I'm just going to read a little bit about John. I'll introduce you to him, read his bio, and then he's going to tell us what his book is about. John lives in the Philadelphia area with his wife and two sons. He has a bachelor's in English from the University of Pittsburgh and an MFA in creative writing from the Mountain View Master of Fine Arts program. He's a contributing writer for WBUR Boston's Cognoscenti, we love them, and NPR features his essays on race, identity, and parenting. His debut novel, Three Fifths, was named one of the best books of the year by the Chicago Tribune, Crime Reads, and Booklist. It was nominated for the Edgar, Anthony, and Strand Magazine Critics Awards for the best first novel, Whew. and it was amazing. Thanks. I totally agree with all of that. So. John, here it is. Tell me, what is After the Lights Go Out about? So After the Lights Go Out is about Xavier Scarecrow Wallace. He's a late 30s mixed martial arts fighter at the end of his career, but he's also suffering with traumatic, uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy or CTE, pugilistic dementia is more commonly known. Um, and as he's struggling with the challenges from that, he's also caring for his a white father who has Alzheimer's. And as he is losing his mental capacities, his father is starting to reveal things about himself that make Xavier understand why his black mother left when he was a child. So um, the first question I have to ask you is why mixed martial arts? Why MMA? Why not straight boxing or, right? <laughs> I mean, why, why that? Well, you know, they always tell you to read the book you or write the book you haven't read yet. And I hadn't read anything. Uh, while I know books out there exist, I hadn't read any books about MMA that specifically address this topic. Um, and I also saw MMA as a bridge to talk about other mental health issues because of the of the incidence of, of CTE in the sport. Yeah. So um, I really love that you brought in uh, we see Xavier at this point where he is really, his mind is going, right? Mm -hmm. His body is broken down from years of his sport. He has given himself to, and in every way, right, to MMA. Um, he can't remember things. It hurts to stand up, right, to yeah. sit down, to flex, to make a fist. Um, and I loved that you were writing about this because we don't talk about what athletes give, right, to reach the pinnacle that they do. Can you help me understand, you know, how did you get into that and why did that become a focus? Well, so uh, besides having trained in the sport as an amateur, I also, before I became a writer, spent more than a decade as a physical therapist. And uh, much of that time was spent in sports medicine working with athletes. Um, and you get to see firsthand the price that they pay, um, how it affects not just their performance on the field, but their everyday life how it affects their interactions with their friends and family. Uh, pain is, uh, we, we, don't, we don't talk enough about how the, the cascading effect that pain has on someone's life outside of just their performance physically. 
Yeah. I love it because so often in sports, we see the instant replay. We see that moment where someone becomes a champion, right? But there's a famous quote that I don't know. I've had several coaches use this all the time, right? That champions are made when no one's looking. That's right. Right. And, and then that, right. That just standing up when it hurts, right. We don't see that. And I loved how you captured it. So how deep did you have to dig to get that? Or, or, or is it something you just knew that well from yeah, that experience? It, it, there wasn't really much research involved. Uh, I, I think I said to someone recently that the, the research was my experience and my experience was the research. It was um, both having trained in it. Again, I don't compare myself to any of the the, the men and women who are, are striving to do this professionally and, and as amateurs, but um, the treating these people and, and really understanding that kind of pain at a, at a, at a granular level, um, it was easy to access that to, to try and convey that in the book. Yeah. But also, I mean, I guess to be even more specific, what I loved is you show, right, you show Xavier is at, you know, in, at a peak, like when he wins a fight, right? Mm -hmm. We see that moment of when he's there, but then he's left afterwards broken. And I think you bring up the question, what do we do with our athletes that we have loved for their 10 minutes, <laughs> right, in the spotlight? You just won the gold medal doing whatever it is, and then you forget about them, yeah. you know, two and or three months later. And it only feels like in, in recent years that more attention has been paid to that. But even with the increase in attention, to your point, what are we doing? You know, what? yes, we're more aware of it maybe, but mm -hmm. um, it's it's I'm hard-pressed to see where we're doing much about it. Yeah. And how it affects the whole family, too. Exactly. It's not just an athlete, right? Exactly. It's everyone. So uh, you brought in Loki, who can you introduce us to? You should describe him. Who is Loki? <laughs> Loki is, uh, from what I understand, everybody's favorite character. And, and I've gotten many distressed texts and emails uh, from people who hadn't quite finished the book, wanting to know what Loki's outcome was going to be. Um, I'm not going to spoil anything, but okay. I, but I, uh, but yeah, Loki is a rescue pit bull um, who becomes something of a kindred spirit and and a little bit of a mirror for Xavier uh, in terms of the, the trials and tribulations that they've both gone through. Right, because he started as a fighter, right? That's he right. was trained as a fighter also. I mean, I love that you say a little bit of a mirror because I thought it was an exact mirror, <laughs> right? They are both broken and helping each other. So can you help me understand sort of how they lean on each other and how you thought about that? Yeah, I, you know, I part of that is just selfish. I love dogs and um, and uh, dog fighting is awful. And, and uh, I think in the same way that we think about athletes we don't we don't think about the, the the repercussions of some of that and I think um I I thought what better analogy and what better allegory than to have this fighter who is um you know at the end of his career and suffering all these both physical and mental pains to have an animal that has gone through these things as well and and somehow you know they do offer each other support I don't I'm not sure if I can really clearly indicate how they do. Uh, you just you just kind of have to read it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, also, um, Loki is, you know, he's um, people are scared of him because he's a pit bull. Mm -hmm. Right. And he goes into um, an assisted living facility and there's some people who are scared of him and some for whom he's very helpful. He gives them comfort. And I think maybe some people feel that way about Xavier, too. They're exactly. scared of him. Right. Yep. He's 
No, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, you please. I love to hear you talk about it. No, I well, like one of the one of the things that was uh, interesting to write was about the, the the time that he was walking the dog down the street and people would cross, mm -hmm. and you know it was sort of that question: where are they crossing because of me, or are they crossing because of the dog, or is it both? Right. Right. Okay. So you gave me like the perfect segue into my next question there, <laughs> yes. which is, yeah, yes. Thank you. As if we had planned it. Race. Race plays a big issue in this book as well. Xavier has a white father and a black mother. And um, uh, I think I am going to read just a little paragraph in here because yeah. his father, tell me about his father, please. <laughs> Can you so, share with us where he finds him? Yeah, yeah Sam, it, it, where, we, where we meet them in the story, Sam Wallace, his father, uh, is in a nursing home, um, you know, really in the throes of sort of late stage Alzheimer's. Um, Xavier uh, chose to, well, was didn't necessarily choose, but lived with his father after his mother left the family. And there's some mystery about why she left um, with some clues that sort of begin to add up as the story progresses. But again, in, I found it interesting, another sort of mirror, as you mm -hmm. would say, right? Right. Both, both men losing their minds. Yes. Yeah, I was fascinated with the idea that, that CTE and, and any other of these sort of traumatic brain injuries really are confined to younger or uh, younger adults, whereas Alzheimer's and dementia are considered... Uh, maladies of, of older adults. And so to me, I was uh, interested in exploring that that parallel and juxtaposition at the same time. Yeah. And yet they're exhibiting many of the same exact behaviors exactly. and you know, everything about it. So I thought that was also just a fascinating parallel. Okay. So for anybody who has a copy of this beautiful book, I'm just going to read one paragraph from page 12 um, where you write, so since no one here, so this is Xavier, he's speaking. Mm -hmm. So since no one here wants to come out and say it, the reality you're suggesting I need to accept is that my father, who married a black woman and loves his black son, was secretly a closet racist. And now because of his Alzheimer's, his filter's off. Do I have that right? Do you know how freaking ridiculous that sounds? Okay, please talk to me about that paragraph. Uh, I mean, unfortunately, that paragraph's grounded in a lot of reality. It's not, um, not personal, uh, but in the sense that, uh, you know, I've... My wife continues to work in the skilled nursing setting. You know, I've worked with patients with uh, dementia. Um, some some interesting things come out, um, particularly in the skilled nursing setting, where uh, a lot of the staff that work with these patients. Um, I mean, there, there's a large percentage of Black women that work with these these patients, and they have some awful things said to them while they're caring for these people. While and when they're in awful the most, racist thing. Yeah, absolutely. While they're in their most vulnerable state. So, and, and we don't talk about that and there's no attention paid to that. Um, and it, uh, it felt critical to me that if I was going to write about this, this mental health issue and this setting, that there was no way that I could ignore how that happens to so many of the black women and, 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 and any people of color that work in that setting. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. I guess for me, what really struck, struck a chord was this idea that Xavier is falling apart mm -hmm. and he thinks he has his dad. I mean, he knows that his dad is not all with it, but he thinks that at least he still has his dad. And yet there he is and realizing that his dad is even being pulled out from under him. Maybe his dad isn't who is who he thought he was, right? Maybe he doesn't love him. And and what I thought was it would be interesting about that was to maybe think that Xavier knew that all along. Um, there was there was a one of one of my uh, 
feels weird to say I have a favorite passage in my book, but um, talking about the idea of, of the power of denying something about someone you love. Mm -hmm. yeah. I love that. That is powerful. And sometimes I think we very purposely do it, right? Mm -hmm. It's easier that way. I mean, how Absolutely. else are you going to love your father? It's, it's his father. Right. Right. I mean, how is he going to look at himself and say, I'm going to do everything I can to take care of this man. And yet maybe he doesn't love me or he's racist or he thinks I'm not as good as him. Right. right. I mean, these are all these questions coming to him. Um, I think it's the phrase his dad keeps using is you people. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, he didn't believe it at first. So that was very powerful in this Thank book. You. Thank um, you. Yeah. And um so uh, sort of interspersed with all of this, I get I, one of the things that I love that you put in here was we have these powerful themes that we've already talked about, right? <laughs> Losing your mind, your body breaking from sport, what you're going to do, race, and then also violence. Mm -hmm. MMA is inherently violent, <laughs> right? But also violence itself. And, and what is his sort of what is Xavier's relationship to violence? And you really bring that out, I thought, using his internal monologue. Mm -hmm. Um, so can you talk about that as a device and how you used it in the book while I tee up my next page that I want to read? <laughs> yeah. So there were a couple of reasons for that. One, um, it was somewhat influenced in a, in a literary sense by, um, Smith Henderson's book, Fourth of July Creek. Um, he did this really fascinating kind of interesting thing with second person and a, and a voice that sort of disembodied voice that it was that you weren't always entirely sure where the voice was coming from, but it was sort of this truth speaker um, throughout the book. So that was that. And, and I wanted to play with that notion because I loved it so much when I read it. Um, the other idea was that uh, I was fascinated by the, the idea of this deterioration of Xavier's frontal lobe, you know, the, the thoughts that he might think that would never, that he would never speak in public, but were now starting to work their way to the forefront. Um, and some of those thoughts contained his opinions on our thoughts about violence, whether it be in football or boxing or, or any of the contact sports. I love that as a manifestation of CTE. That's why we're getting those thoughts that mm -hmm. would otherwise be hidden. Exactly. So whereas we're hearing from his dad, what his dad is saying, we're, actually, we're reading his thoughts. That is, exactly. very, I love that. Thank okay. You. So um, for anyone who has the book and wants to follow along, I'm on page 59 <laughs> and the internal monologue, just one paragraph. So you wrote, see, violence is in our nature, homeboy. Violence builds empires. Violence destroys tyranny. Violence is the only way forward and it's in our DNA. It's damn sure in yours, but somewhere along the way, we started telling ourselves it wasn't cool, that we couldn't just pick up a club anymore and crush somebody's skull if they were in our way. So we created all of these rules that moved our violence to the ring, the mats, the cage, the field, the ice. And then we created rules, turned it into sport, turned our primal urges into a desire for the most yards, the most points, the most wins in the season, the belt, the trophy. Whew. Did I write that? <laughs> you wrote that. Absolutely beautiful. Thank you. I love that reaction, right? Sometimes when you hear the polished book. Did I? Did it's I like, really wow. Wow. Okay. Yes. And right. you could do it again. Um, so, but violence, right? As the, this idea that we're channeling violence into sport. Please oh. talk to me about that and how you think about that. Oh, it's so... It's so difficult, right? Because I love MMA. I watch football. I, you know, I, I enjoy these sports. Um, so it is, it's, it's, but 
it comes with an asterisk, asterisk, right? You know, like it's, it's especially having treated athletes that have been in this, that, that have been in the sports. I mean, even at, even at the amateur level, um, because you know, the cost and you know, that, that, um, you know, in some ways we commodify violence by, by watching these, these athletes do their things. So it's, uh, I didn't, I didn't write those passages because I have an answer. <laughs> it was really much more about, as, as with anything and, and any of the themes in this book, I, I'm always just exploring. You know, I'm looking, I'm looking for either my own inner dialogue or to create dialogue amongst ourselves about these things that we sort of kind of take for granted. Yeah. So as someone who also just loves sports, I have played a lot of sports my entire life, right? I mean, I always, I often am fascinated with, with this question, why? Mm -hmm. Why do we like sports? And then here you're suggesting maybe for some it's the violence. It's right. a way to channel it. Right. But is it? Is it? See, that's what, yeah. that's, ex that's exactly it. It was, again, it was this sort of selfish you know i kind of wrote it for me I, I you know these were ideas that i had questions about and i still don't have answers to right um, but there it is right like why is it so much fun to win right right <laughs> at any cost right because you yeah. you've beaten somebody else even that right. verb to beat right is violent exactly right. so Anyway, I loved that. And I spent a lot of time thinking about that. I do very often anyway. Why do we love sport? Why do I love to play sports? Right? Yeah. Um, so one of the big points, I mean, we know from the very beginning, this is not a spoiler, is that Xavier is sort of gearing up and getting ready for a comeback fight. Mm -hmm. Right? This is about his journey. He thinks that he is coming back. Uh, and yet every time we see him, he seems to be falling apart. <laughs> A little bit more. Mm -hmm. So, why did he hold on to that dream that he thought he could come back? Specifically, because he was falling apart. You know, I think he was he was at a stage where it was too late for him to do anything else. Um, and there's a part of him that still loved the thrill of competition, like we talked about. You know, for whatever reason that might have been. Um, so it's you know, and and I think too it was also that. Just uh, as an author, I didn't want to make it quite so dark, uh, you know, in the sense that he needed to be building towards something, you know, even as even as it seemed as though he was losing everything else. Yeah. But you played it out in the sport itself. I mean, um, towards the beginning, I think it's probably in the first third of the book, you have him um, spar with someone named Lawrence. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a pretty brutal fight. Yeah. You, you describe it. And he says that he loses himself. Mm -hmm. He doesn't even remember how bad it was. Um, can you talk about that fight and, and why you made it so brutal? Well, it, it was more to address, you know, some of the some of the potential symptoms of CTE. And, and one of those can be unchecked rage, um, you know, and and often without any real specific trigger or any kind of trigger that in any sense justified that escalation of rage. So it was it was primarily about that to to show that um, this character who by all you know for all intents and purposes is still sort of a very quiet and restrained individual except for when he's in the cage. Um, but even you know even his cousin comments that he he's not the type to be he's not a brutal fighter, and yet we needed to see that there was a way that this CT was really affecting him, and it was how he lost control in this match. Right. But I was I was wondering, can you be a fighter and not be brutal? Right. I mean, how could you 
not have that in you. Yeah, I th- yeah, I think it's possible uh, because you know I-, I think this is where fighting sometimes gets unfairly maligned, in the sense that you know it is it is as violent as a football game. You know, mm-hmm. if if maybe not less so. You know, I mean, some of those guys are in the, are the in, on the football field are in the equivalent of a car crash every four downs. Yeah. You know, the impact that they they hit and and, it, and an open field hit is one of the most terrifying things to see, in my opinion. Um, so I, you know, I, I think, but in some of those men off the field can be some of the most gentle and, 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 uh, I think, uh, soft-spoken and, um, kind people. So I think, um, you know, both fighters and, and any athletes in a contact sport may just have something that they have to tap into to be able to do that. But, um, some of them are able to separate, I guess, personality from sport. I think that um, as you're talking about this, it makes me think that you've actually shown that Xavier compartmentalizes a lot of parts of his life. Absolutely. His father, the fighting, love for the dog, you know, his cousin, whatever it might be. Um, And maybe that's that's how he survives. Maybe that's how any of us do. I think so. Yeah, we have to push it to the side. Okay, so... um, John, you already know that I'm from Philly. I grew up in Philly. <laughs> I love the city. And I know you are on the outskirts there. Um, but you set this in Maniunk, um, which is a neighborhood near and dear to my heart. <laughs> I grew up in East Falls, Germantown. So um, it was a character for me yeah, in yeah. the book. Is it a character for you? And how do you think of Philly in this book? I mean, I love any book that uh, where setting feels like a character. Um, and so, you know, I spent some time, uh, even though I live, I don't live in that area. I spent a lot of time working down there. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and Maniunk, just, just with the hills alone in that area, that, that to me is part of the character of that area. Um, and so, you know, in terms of training, running hills is a big part of that. You know, there, there's just, there's so much in that region, you know, there's access to, um, uh forbidden drive and and these you know and now i'm talking people are probably tuning out now because i'm talking philly landmarks if they're not from philly but um you know there was just there's so much rich th- so many rich things to to pull from that environment that i just i had to include it as, as part of this part of this book yes the hills of many and when i was growing up people would say that you didn't actually know how to drive until you could parallel park in the hills yeah right, <laughs> right? Well, let alone just work your way up the hill if another car is coming down the hill it's like a yeah. problem yeah, yeah. Um, but what was interesting about that neighborhood is that Maniunk, for those of you who are not from Philly, um, has really gentrified. Yeah. Right. It, it exactly. Really, like even in the past 20 years, I mean, it was not a beautiful, polished place. Let's put it that way. Right. <laughs> 20 years ago. And now Xavier and his cousin are in a gym and they're talking about they want to be training MMA, but they've got people coming in doing Zumba or bar or whatever, right? So why set it in a place like that? What are you trying to to help us see? I, to me, just like with any of the other themes that, I'm, that I bring into the book, it's, it's kind of generating conversation around that. You know, it's like, you know, to your point, yes, it's gentrified, but then like it happens and then we just were to move on. Um, mm-hmm. But without much thought uh, of the effect um, on the people who are displaced by that gentrification. Mm-hmm. So, you know, without... Uh, I try to do it without wagging the finger and proselytizing, but, you know, by, by showing how it affects real quote unquote fictional people. Right. But right. But also, right. So where does Xavier go? Where does he fit in all of this? He's also being sort of pushed out 
right? right. And it pushed to the side, just as people who lived in Maniunk are being pushed to the side, right? I mean, exactly. you have very, lots of these mirrors built into the book. Right. Were you thinking about all of this as you were writing? Oh, 100%. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's just, it's a beautiful um, setting in that sense. It's perfect because it used to be a really gritty, right? Bare knuckled neighborhood. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, it sort of makes sense to see that kind of a gym there. And yeah. And, and a lot of that is history that was, you know, preceded me. So it, it was a learning experience to, as I worked in that area, to learn that it had not always been this way. Right. Right. It had not been as beautiful. I guess that's so goes the way of cities. Um, so we just have, I just have one more uh, question until we move over. I want to talk just for a minute about Xavier's mom, Evelyn. Mm -hmm. yes. um, she's sort of a part of the book, but not really in the book in the same way. We don't see her for a while. Um, we sort of write. Can you talk about how you thought about her character as you were writing? Yeah, I, I really wanted to build to her reveal um, as a as a way to really demonstrate how Xavier's current condition with his mind was affecting his recollection of, recollection of the past, um, because he had he had in some ways demonized her because he felt she had abandoned him um, when the reality was actually kind of the reverse. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I, I gave her to us in, in bits and pieces filtered through his memory so that when we did meet her, it was a revelation in many ways about the woman she really was, which was um, she was kind of a hero. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, switching gears just a little bit, I want to about, ask you about writing. So this is your second book. You see in the background there, Three Fifths. Um, yep, there it is. Amazing book. How different is it publishing after the lights go out, right, second time around? Oh, so different. Um, it's, uh, you know, obviously different publishers, so that there's just differences there. Um, you know, it's uh, it was a different process writing this one as opposed to the first one. Um, you know, it was, uh, different. How can you give us a little bit of color? Yeah. I mean, so the, the three fifths was my, my MFA thesis. So that, that process was kind of built in, you know, it was, you had certain, uh, 30 page excerpts due every so many months to a mentor. So, you know, it was, it was the recipe was kind of baked in, in terms of discipline, um, you know, I was able to take some of that over into this next process, but you know, this time there was nobody telling me what to do or when to get it in. It was uh, write it and hopefully somebody buys it. So <laughs> that's that. That was the difference. The other was, um, you know, I this was the first time where I wrote something and then threw out about twenty thousand words before I actually discovered the book that I really wanted to write. Wow! Wow! Yeah. And how about the publishing process itself? How different has that been? Right, the launching. That not so much. Um, it, it's uh, it's it's pretty similar, you know. A lot of trying to get attention beforehand, trying to get attention during. It, it's there hasn't been a huge difference in that, um, uh, except for the fact that I caught COVID and couldn't do my launches. Uh, but again, very fortunate. Not complaining because it could have been much worse. Yeah. So um, my listeners love to this last question that I love to ask authors, which is uh, what kind of advice do you have for new writers or people who are just starting out? Uh, you know, don't listen to anybody that tells you you have to do a certain thing to be a writer. The, the only thing you have to do is write. You know, it's the the 
the uh, the button chair every day, the specific word counts, all of that stuff. Every time I hear it, it always feels a little gatekeepy to me. Like like if you don't do this, you're not in the club. That's not the case. It's it's write and don't quit is is the best advice I can ever give. Kind of like training for any sporting event too, right? Absolutely. And including the pain that is that's, involved. That's right. <laughs> right. And what about for the publishing process itself, making your way through, right? Finding agents or MFAs. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that that you want to share or advice? Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting. I'm going to be uh, guest faculty at the the Randolph MFA uh, uh, next week, actually. Oh, and one of congratulations. The things, thank you. And one of the things I'm going to, my, my talk is going to be about sort of the business of publishing and, and navigating your way through because it's not something, a lot of it is find out on your own. Um, and, and I think the, the, the biggest takeaway with that is, um, or one of the big takeaways I want to impart with people with that is acceptance is, is probably one of the greatest feelings in the writing life, but don't let it blind you into making the wrong choice right away. Do you know, like, so for example, you know, the, 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 the first house that makes an offer may not be the best house for you to be in. You know, it's, you, you really gotta, you gotta do your research, you know, feel, feel all the feelings, be happy, celebrate your wins, uh -huh. but also be careful and, and make sure that you are, whether it's agents, whether it's editors, whether it's publishing houses, always, do your research and and know and know your worth. Yeah, that's so well said because you know we work so hard for someone to suddenly give you an offer, right? It's hard not to jump sometimes. But Absolutely. You want to make sure you make the right jump that's right. when you do. So that's right. well said. John, thank you so much for joining me. I absolutely loved it. After the lights go out, there's your gorgeous cover. For those of you listening, if you haven't bought a copy yet, if you haven't read it, go to your library, go to your bookstore, get a copy. John, may you sell many, many copies. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you.